Okay, we'll go to Luke chapter 14. We were here three weeks ago. I wasn't here last Wednesday and appreciate Jay stepping in at the last minute and helping. This was a passage that we took on the beginning of it two weeks ago, and I don't really want to go back and stress all of the things that we discussed then, but there's a few that I want us to go back and look at and just kind of lead into the rest of it tonight. So just back to verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. We spent a lot of time uh, two weeks ago talking about the, the necessary relevance of that statement. I'm sure for Jesus, and it should be for us, that the observation of our lives should be welcomed and desired. We were not designed to be a lot put under a basket. We were designed to be a light that would shine. We were designed to be a light that would radiate a truth, freedom, power, authority. And we were never designed to be hid. So the fact that they watched him closely should be also our desire. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote that you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. One of the sad testimonies of Christianity today is that we want our lives to be as private as what the world wants. This may be too broad of a statement, but the world has something to hide. There's a reason that they don't want their life reviewed. There's a reason why they don't want their life examined. Our sin has been covered. It has been dealt with. We are free, and we should be people who welcome the observation of others. Our life should be valued and examined because of what God has done. Verse 2, And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answered and spake unto the lawyers. Remember, this is Jesus now initiating this, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Because he knew what they were thinking. The issue was not really about whether or not it was the healing directly. It was about whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath day, which was against their law. In verse 4 and 5, he says, And they held their peace. They wouldn't answer him. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? Again, they couldn't answer these things. Jesus never broke a single commandment of God, but he very frequently broke the traditions that men had put around them. This is what they were constantly dealing with, was because it wasn't the law that he broke. It was the traditions that they had added to it. So Jesus' logic is very simple. If, it, if you would say it was okay to help an animal, then why would it not be okay to heal someone, to help someone who was created in the image of God? One of the truths and sad parts about legalism and I, I'm sure somebody could find an exception to this, but it seems like to me that legalism, as it was seen here with the Pharisees, is always born in pride. Pride always seems to be the root of it. I had this question asked of me within the last three days. What's the mindset of the heart of someone who belongs to a Pentecostal church? I could clearly explain and share that somebody who belonged to a Pentecostal church was somebody who no longer had to be convinced that the Holy Spirit was powerful and the Holy Spirit was relevant in our story. But I said, you also have to, to know, can be within any denomination, they can become just as legalistic as someone who's ultra-conservative. You know, that's why some people don't like what the Pentecostal church does, because it seems fabricated, because there's an expectation that this has to happen every time we come together. The very conservative position has just ruled the Holy Spirit largely out of the story completely. What legalism will do is make both ends of that take great pride in what they do. 
And so when the pride begins to be involved, the legalistic lines become very, very defined. I want to be able to tell you what I'm proud of. I want to know what I'm proud of. So it's often born as an expression of pride, but it is an extreme arrogance to put the traditions of men, our ideas and our concepts above the law of God. I wonder when it was that church began to be focused around a sermon and how strange that actually sounds. That the reason that we come to church, the reason that we do music is often leading up to this sermon. How good the service was hinges on how good the sermon was. How well was it delivered? How studied was it? How prepared was it? How did it touch us? So we grade the service by the sermon. And I can assure you when you read the New Testament that that was never what God intended. That church would always be centered around his presence. That we came to engage somebody. That we came to encounter the reality of God. It becomes easier to create the divisions when you rally around a sermon. It will tear down barriers when you rally around the person and the presence of God. So in verse 7, he put forth a parable to those who were bidden. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that, that he that has bidden thee come, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of him that sat at meat with thee. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So he gives this parable. It's the basis of so much teaching, the reality of how God approaches the presence and the reality of mankind. But verse 11 makes the story very clear. Those things that we do by ourselves, those things that we do of our own making, that come out of our own mind and form in our own heart, those things, according to this, that we do by ourselves will have no honor before the host. We need to think about that because there's more than just where they set, though that's powerfully relevant. The truth of this is that the reason that they set where they set was based on their mind, their image, their perception, rather than trusting the one who asked him to come. We are going to stand before the judgment seat. We are going to encounter every one of us that moment not really as judgment, but as accounting. It's like sitting in front of an accountant more than a judge because guilt and innocence won't be declared. It will be an accounting of our lives. The thing that, that will be the biggest shock to most believers is the thing that I valued, the thing that I gave mental value to and, and emotional value to in that moment is what Jesus is going to say, that does not matter to me. It's of no regard to me. What was happening in this moment was that the person who asked them to come, the host, was ignored in the decision about where they were to sit. If we don't believe as Christians that 100% of our going about the things of God, 100% is determined by the mind and the heart and the voice of God and not us. If that doesn't shift in us, then we're going to be as surprised in this moment of a banquet as this person was who said, by my mind, by my own assessment of my value to the host, I'm going to take this position of honor only to have the host come and say, that's not my perception of you. I want you to move down lower. 
So how is this supposed to work? Why was the person set in a position of honor? It's because he allowed the host to make the decisions, to give the direction, to establish position, and he was humble in, in, in recognizing who he was in relationship to who the father was. This is going to be the greatest shock in the reality of the Christian world when it's our turn to stand before the judgment seat and believe in some way that there's merit in what I have decided to do in relationship to God in the building of a kingdom. We're going to be shocked that our own assessment of what we were supposed to do, how this was supposed to look, how we were supposed to have church, you know, all the things that we've decided and said this is the way it's supposed to look, and someday God's going to be pleased with me, and I'll be seated in the position of honor when we didn't go first to ask him what we were supposed to do. It's going to be a huge shock to the Christian world. I'm not going to say that it's, it's going to, we're not going to heaven. I'm telling you, when we stand before the judgment seat and our Christian life has been based on what I thought in my mind and felt in my heart and ignoring the voice of God, we're going to be shocked. And he's telling it right here, we're going to be shocked. True humility that he's describing here resonates from this perspective. One is that our sins are covered. I need to be real careful how I say this because I sure don't want this to come out wrong. David and I'm talked about this just a few minutes after church a couple of weeks ago, how strange it is that we have created a hierarchy within the Trinity. We don't have the right to create the hierarchy that says that the Holy Spirit takes some second position to God the Father and God the Son, because most of us would have no problem with saying in, in the Christian world, I love God, I love Jesus. But I guarantee you most of the Christian world would stumble over the statement, I love the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of the Father. You will not know the Father if you don't know the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. And he says, who knows a man better than the Spirit of a man? Who knows God better than the Spirit of God? He's making it powerfully clear. Most of us, and again, this is what I have to say very carefully, Jesus had a powerful and unique purpose in the salvation of men. And it was Jesus who came, sacrificed, put himself as God through the things that were necessary so that my life could be clean, so that my sin could be dealt with. Not as an expiation, but as a propitiation. So that my sin not only was covered, but my sin was removed. Why? If the conclusion of that statement says, well, so that I can go to heaven. What a strange reducing of the purpose of God to send Jesus to sacrifice and to suffer the way that he did, simply so that I could leave this earth someday and go into eternity to be with him. It actually makes no sense. Why did my sin need to be dealt with? What was the purpose of God dealing with my sin? To set me free, but it's also to clean this vessel for what purpose? So that he could come and live in it. And he was killed. He, and he was sacrificed. He was crucified. He shed his blood. And it was that blood that covered our sin, dealt with it, removed it. So that when the father looks, he sees the blood because that's what there is. Jesus' resurrection brought us back to life so that I'm clean inside and I'm alive again. To what end? So that I can hold the Spirit of God. So that the purposes of God can be fulfilled in me, not by me, but by Him. It was Scott Lopes who said, he said it very well, we have to get past the cross. Jesus was telling us, you've got to get past the cross because the story cannot end here. If you let the story even end with his ascension, all we're left with is self-effort from that point forward trying to live the best life that we could possibly live. True humility 
It's recognizing that Jesus did something in, in dealing with our sin and covering, but it, he did it so that it would allow us to have a spirit-to-spirit relationship again with God. And I can't and will never minimize that part of the story. He wants us, truly wants us, to understand why he covered our sin, why he dealt with it. I used to have a, a Coke lid because it worked so well because it would stick to the palm of my hand. Put that Coke lid there with the sharp part sticking up. In the Old Testament, the sin was in the palm of our hand. And I'd say, that's our sin. The blood of animals, in the Old Testament, it was an expiation. It would only cover it. But if you removed your hand, they, and they did, you know, every year, there's recognition because they had to do it again and again, that the sin was still there. But when Jesus came, the propitiation, when he covered it, if you were to remove the blood, if you remove the covering, and you lifted it off, the hand would be empty. He didn't just cover it. He removed it so that there would be a capacity to hold the Spirit of God. Jesus' work was very definitive. It wasn't a general work. It was a very definitive work to deal with the sin, so that, yes, the benefit of part of that is that we get to go to heaven someday. But he says, I want you to be valuable between the time that you're saved and the time that you end up going home. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be set apart because I have a function for you in building a kingdom and and you can't do it. I want you to be clean so that you can receive the spirit. That's humility. That's recognizing that it was about God. It was from God, but it it continues to be about him and not about me. That's humility. That we were reconciled also back to an other-centered life. What did Jesus do? He allowed us once again with our sin now dealt with to be people where others are more important than ourselves. And that he gave us the spirit so that we wouldn't have to strive. In Genesis 15, in that covenant relationship I talked to you about last time, about God allowing Abraham after preparing this bloody alley of sacrifice that he allowed Abraham to go to sleep so the glory cloud would come and pass through this by himself. Because God says, I want to fulfill my promises to you and I have to remove you from the story. I cannot let my promises hinge on your ability to keep your side of the covenant. He says, I'm not only going to remove you from having to sign this covenant, I'm also going to do something else. I'm also going to give the Holy Spirit because I'll sign your side and make sure that you know that what I've assigned for you to do, that you have no chance of doing, and that would break the contract. So this is the way he sets up the covenant. Abraham, I'm not going to let you walk through. You go to sleep, I'll go through it alone. That way, all the promises hinge on me, not you. Everything I've ever promised will not hinge on your ability to keep this. It's all on me. And by the way, I'll do something else. I'll jump over here on the place that has where your signature is supposed to be. I'll sign my name there, making sure that the things I've asked you to do actually get done. And I'll do them through you. That's quite a covenant. All I want to do is for you to be clean so that I can use your hand, use your heart, use your mouth to speak with. Verse 12, this is kind of where we ended and and we start from here, new. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made. Verse 13, But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee. They cannot pay you back, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. I wish we would learn this. What's Jesus trying to tell us? This is different. This really doesn't get taught much because we believe 
that we are commanded, instructed, and as a very natural part of our Christian life, we're supposed to take care of the poor. And I won't argue with it. But Jesus is telling us something else here. He's not talking about just taking care of them. He's talking about this, the reality of inviting them into something. Verse 14 says, and you shall be blessed. If you do what I just said in 12 and 13, you'll be blessed. Why? Because they cannot pay you back. He's creating a picture here. I'm trying to think of the best way I can describe this. God repays the loan when we help the poor, when we go beyond just a simple kindness of what's expected of us as Christians, but when we in obedience help the poor. He says, thou shalt be recompensed you shall be paid back for what you did at the resurrection of the just. What is he saying? What you gave is basically the reality that you are loaning God the resources that he gave you. We recognize that what we have was put into our hands by God. What we're doing in that moment is loaning back to God those things he placed in our hand. And it says, whatever we loan back to God for the blessing of the poor, God pays great interest. He's placed tremendous interest on those things that we loan back to him for the building of a kingdom, for the taking care of the poor, for building those things that he says that we're supposed to build in obedience. He pays, according to this, he pays tremendous interest on those things that we loan back to him. Conceptually, that was different for me. We talk about rewards. We talk about how he has assigned rewards, how he gives rewards. He's telling us right here that obedience In this particular case, let me just go back and read it again, 12 and 13. When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again. He says, if you do it, and then they reciprocate and invite you, there's nothing. Why why, why was this necessary? Because most of what was being done in the name of God was being done so that I could get a blessing back. The nature of the Pharisees, the nature of the religious world was I do for somebody who can do back to me. Jesus was addressing that. He says, if you want to truly be blessed, this is the answer. When there is no recompense, when there is no giving back to us, can we just loan our provision, the ones that God gave us? And again, he pays with increasing interest all the time. Verse 15, one of them sat at meat with him, heard these things, He said unto him, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus hears. He says this, and this group of Pharisees that he's now sat down with, and he knows their heart, he knows where their mind is, and and one of them pops off and, and makes this statement, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, and it causes Jesus to say this. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper, and bade many, or asked many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. You understand how ridiculous that sounds? And it even sounds ridiculous to us. Shorty, would you buy a piece of land and then wait later to go see it? No. It doesn't even make sense. I pray thee have me excused. Verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. Again, ridiculous. I pray they have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. There's probably a necessary commentary right there, but I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Never mind. <laughs> just barely, come on, Rand, just leave it alone. 
So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is still room. The Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. This is Jesus' response to the exclamation of the man when he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He said, You're holding and admiring this messianic banquet. Now, kind of remember who he's talking to. Who's used to and accustomed to these finer things. So immediately this man says, when Jesus mentions this, he says, man, I'm looking forward to the day when I get to sit at that banquet. That's basically what he's saying. Blessed is the man who gets to do that. Saying about himself, I'm certainly looking forward to that day when I get to sit at that banquet. And Jesus, knowing exactly what was being said, the truth of it, the deeper truth of it, began to tell this parable and say, yeah, I understand that you're looking forward to the banquet. I want to know, what are you going to do with the invitation when I send it? The invitation is basically setting in front of you. I want a response based on what are you going to do with the invitation? Because here I sit. So we, we ask ourselves, what's the relevance to us today? We can sit and we could look forward. Every one of us could look forward to the day when we get to sit at the banquet. In that amazing moment when Jesus walks in and we're sitting at this banquet. My mind can't even quite imagine what that would be like. But we can all sit and we can admire it and we can desire it. And Jesus is still saying, but I want to know, what are you doing with the invitation that I'm sending you? You're being asked. And the invitation says, if you really want to sit at that banquet... That you will first of all receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you will also then receive the Holy Spirit who becomes the means that allows you to enter into that banquet because you have been asked. He gave us an invitation. It's not just Jesus. That's not what's going to be unreviewed. I mean, Jesus is, again, I don't mean by any means to diminish what Jesus has done. But the reality of when you go back even to Matthew 25, we talked about this before. What's the difference between these five virgins and these five virgins? It describes them all alike. They're virgins. All of them have lamps. All of them's lamps are burning. All of them sleep. All of them are waiting for the bridegroom. There's only one difference drawn between five, the first five and the second five, and that is that they also, not only did they have oil in their lamps, but they had oil in another vessel. They had the reality of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in that vessel. And that's what made them able to go into the banquet when the other five come and knock on the door and say, let us in. And the host comes, Jesus comes and says, I don't know you. Intimately, I don't know you. Why? Because we don't have the relationship that the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit allows us to have. Those other five are not lost. They just don't get to enter into the fullness because they didn't embrace the invitation. That full invitation doesn't just read Jesus died for you, though that's the beginning. It's a powerful reality. That whole invitation says Jesus came, he died, he, was, he gave himself for you to deal with your sin. He rose on the third day. He came and he, and he spoke over those next 40 and 50 days about what was fixing to come. He ascended back to his father and as he promised, what happened at Pentecost is he sent the Holy Spirit. That's the invitation. The invitation reads the whole thing. And for us to minimize, he said, what are you going to do with this invitation? What are you going to do with it? You admire the banquet. 
Are you really ready for the invitation to come? Or will we make excuses as well? God, man, my job, my family, the workload, the pressures, the frustrations. What will our answer be when the invitation comes? Excuses are made by every one of us. And very sadly, they're kind of fashioned conveniently. Whatever's handy is what we happen to use. But once we make them, we kind of cling on to them with desperation. And God is saying, points it out as a response to that one statement. Blessed is the man who gets to sit at that banquet. Because he knew that man was thinking, I get to sit there. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but right now, the invitation is sitting in front of you. Here I am. I am the invitation to that banquet. And what excuses are you going to give? And he's asking us the same thing. To compel is used there as simply drawing in by this absolute persuasion, kind of the supernatural evidence of this unconditional love, because he is going to make that appeal to our heart supernaturally, unconditionally. So we're responding. Our invitation, our response to that invitation is going to simply be, how am I going to treat the unconditional, absolutely pure, sacrifice and the supernatural evidence of God How am I going to treat that when my invitation comes? And Jesus, very clear, for I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden, the ones who had an excuse, just didn't baiting once saved, always saved. He's saying, Jay said a while ago, you turned down my invitation. What's my invitation? Jesus. You're not going to even begin considering the invitation if you don't accept Jesus. That's the invitation. So he's not saying the reason that they're not going to come in is because they refused the invitation. They made an excuse when the invitation came. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to this passage and, and Lord, to just realize just how profound and how deep this teaching really is. What you're telling us and, and how you express the truth of this, how you bring, just in the response to that man's statement, this parable, Lord, just brings such clarity about where our hearts need to be, where we need to stay in this relationship with you, that the invitation is a pressing invitation, that there is no room for an excuse that will resonate in in your heart as any reason greater than the invitation. So I pray, Lord, that for us individually, for us as a church, that we would pay careful attention to the invitation. We just speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.